0: Welcome friends, and especially for today, Beherhat havalno. My name is Nick Mateo, and I'm the Programme Manager at the Armenian Institute in London, and you're listening to the AI's podcast series, Zanazan Sounds. These podcasts fall into one of three strands, Treasures from the Library, Discover, and Uncover. And you're listening to an episode of Uncover, where we explore Armenian and related identities in all their different aspects, both in the region and globally in migrant and diaspora communities. For today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Uzlem Belçim galip who's a Kurdish woman raised in the Republic of Turkey and a research fellow at the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology at the University of Oxford. Özlem's research has explored Kurdish artistic and literary narratives in Turkish Kurdistan, the representation of the Armenian Genocide in Turkish and Kurdish novels, and the agency of Kurdish women in their everyday lives. Ozlem's also been very active in Kurdish NGOs and women's organizations. She recently published a book titled New Social Movements and the Armenian Question in Turkey And her current ethnographic film projects explore Kurdish women's artistic and cultural practices as migrants in European countries and the experience of Kurdish women following the 2015-2016 conflict in Turkish Kurdistan.
1: So I'm very happy to be a part of your podcast series and so yes, so I mean, it looks like like I've done a number of different research, but I would like to talk about how I kind of um, got interested in doing something about Armenian studies. I, I'm Kurd, so basically many people know that, that there is really very um, tricky, strong, and uh, very kind of tempting relationship between Kurds and Armenians. First of all, we share the same land. And there are lots of um, cultural aspects that that we share. I mean, um, and, as, and especially like when you live in Istanbul, actually a couple of um, neighborhoods, especially that you always see the Kurdish and um, Armenian young people, they always hang around together. So I was one of them. So one of my really best friends was Armenian and we were always just, you know, she was taking me to Argos and I was taking her to Özgür Gundam, you know. And uh, we were always going to the demos together, but I have never thought about uh, working on them. It was the time when I started to do uh, my PhD on Kurdish novels at Exeter. And uh, first I had this tattoo actually, so I have an Armenian tattoo, uh, which I have had for, I don't know, like maybe for 15 years now. It's it's Meyer, so mother, on my wrist. And um, it is an inter- interesting experience because I was thinking of doing a tattoo meaning mother. I didn't want to have it in Turkish or Kurdish or in English or any other languages. And I, I, I for 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 a number of years I still can't explain why I picked Armenian actually, but I did really have very nice experience with with it because I've been to whenever you know I went to a country. For research or for, for academic presentations, I met a number of people who kind of read it. So it was really nice. Just imagine you were kind of in Chicago in a Starbucks, you're just grabbing coffee, and then someone says, Oh, mother. Then I said, Oh my God, you can't read it. Like, are you Armenian? She's like, No, I'm American. Like, but I'm working on Armenians, you know, or you're just letting one of your rooms in Exeter, and then a student comes in and then he says, Hmm, mother like how can you read aren't you Georgian he's like I'm Romanian living in Georgia so anyway and then in Stockholm there was a pianist play you know he was just playing the piano and then was just passing I was just listening to him like this and then he saw my tattoo and that's oh mother myer and then again he wasn't even Armenian so anyway so I had like nice uh you know interesting um stories like this so I first had my tattoo then I think my tattoo kind of dragged me into this because it's, it's quite, kind of related. And um, so I was invited to a conference in Oxford, uh, organized by Turkish studies, uh, talking uh, to be, to talk about Kurdish novels. So by Lauren Mignon. So, and Theo, one uh, lint, was a moderator the thing is like one, yeah, I want to ask a question. And then I raised my hand and someone just screamed and she was so thrilled. And she said, oh, you have an Armenian tattoo. It means like mother. And, and then I said, yes, that, that's right. And then, you know, I asked my questions. Then, you know, it was really a marvelous marvelous um, atmosphere. And then I started to talk um, to Theo. And then he, he told me like, what are you thinking of doing? I said, I don't know what I'm gonna do as my, like for my pasta, but I think I should do something about Armenians as well. And I think I should do uh, something. So I started to think about um, Kurdish literature in Soviet Armenia. And after the establishment of um, you know, Republic of Armenia, actually it is still, I mean, I haven't done much about it to be honest, because I, I, I mean, I kind of directed myself to more contemporary um, context of Turkey and how Armenians uh, live at the moment. I mean, in the last few years, let's say. Uh, but I did um, come to, I, I did go to um, Yerevan. So I was there for a couple of weeks and I, I visited Kurdish religious And uh, so to just give a background, um, Kurdish actually culture, kind of, or literary culture, especially flourished in Soviet Armenia. And um, the first Kurdish novel ever was written in Yerevan in 1935. It's called uh, Shivana Kurmanja, which means uh, Kurdish shepherd. And uh, there are a number of Kurdish uh, novels written in the 1940s, 1950s, so they are the first Kurdish novels. So, yeah, of course, I knew them because I've done my piece, on Kurdish novels, So, and I had to read um, a big chunk of um, section on Armenia as well. So, so these, these Kurdish authors are the exiled um, Kurdish Yezidi uh, who kind of had to flee you know, from um, Muslims um, massacres like 100 years ago. And some of them were more recent um, kind of, let's say refugees or migrants, but these writers like kind of, they've been living in in Armenia for more than than 100 years and they're fluent in Armenian and uh, encouraged at the same time. So I really uh, enjoyed, Um, I worked on that one. I wrote um, a chapter, but, I think then I start to feel like I have, you know, I'm more into contemporary context rather than, you know, historical archives, like, because it's not like the problem is over. I mean, it's not like we have had this Armenian genocide in 1915 and then, you know, it's just over. I mean, still there are a lot to discuss about right now and the young people are struggling. I don't know, like how many years, like thousands of young people are kind of um, young um, Armenian people uh, living um, Turkey now. And it's it's very tragic because they were were the ones who could really kind of uh, maintain Armenian identity um, in Istanbul. And um, they had newspapers and local magazines and even radio. Um, and, And I was friend of them as well. And now I see them like living in different, I mean, of course you can't blame them. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, a number of Armenians, of course there are so many Turkish and Kurdish people had to leave Turkey after um, this so-called military coup in um, 2016. So anyway, it was a time when I start to think about new social movements um, happening in, in Istanbul. I have had so many kind of criticism about the reviewers actually saying that what you claim is not new social movement so okay new social movement but but, by its term it means like you go to the streets you do demos you know and um you know trying to get this public engagement on certain topics Uh, of course you use internet you use social media to get you know wider attention and then I said, no, you have to really expand this term because what have been done after Frantink, who was killed um, in, in 2007, um, they're all actually part of this new social movement. It's a, it's a new face of new social movements because, um, because I was, you know, visiting Istanbul quite often. And I, and each time when I was there, I was just going to different concerts, theaters, you know, uh, plays and... Um, I don't know, talks and uh, very artistic, you know, um, you know, productions um, on Dink or, you know, trying to get attention to the Armenian genocide. So, so this book kind of um, was based on a postdoc project uh, founded by Kaldus Gulbenkian. So I'm, I'm really um, grateful for the opportunity that they they provided, but during this postdoc actually, I think that's that's the really nice thing about doing a research because when you start doing something, um, you just think you know you know what you're gonna do. But uh, like I'm, I wasn't supposed to write actually um, kind of Armenian genocide in Turkish novels, Armenian genocide in Kurdish novels, but. When I was actually reading Kurdish novels for my PhD, then I realized all the Kurdish authors were kind of referring to Armenian genocide. Mm-hmm. And you know, that stopped me thinking. I mean, this, this this guy is living in diaspora and they're trying to kind of recurse Kurdish language in, in, in writing because we're basically more oral, uh, you know, literary um people. And why why they have so because they they do talk a lot about Armenian genocide. So and then I decided, okay, I should really write something about this one. And so I wrote that article. So it wasn't a part of my poster, but you know, it just um, you can't stop thinking why these authors have this um, kind of subtopic. And uh, because, yeah. There are so many reasons, of course. I mean, the article was published by Holocaust and um, Genocide Studies, a, a good journal. And some of them feel very guilty for what their great grandfathers have done. Or some of them feel that they kind of uh, they are going through the same, uh, what Armenians, you know, have gone through 100 years ago. So, but it doesn't matter. So they're acknowledging it. And, and and it's happening quite recently. I don't. I'm not talking about a novel written 50 years ago. I'm talking about a novel written like five years ago, uh, even by young people. Because that's the thing, you know, all the, all these peoples in Middle East or in Turkey, especially, they just want to record it because so many things are, you know, happening, and uh, the official um, history is completely, um, you know, <laughs> wrong and different. So um, the authors feel like they have this duty to record it. So, Armenian Genocide was one of them. Absolutely. And and then uh, I had the strong urge to see what Turkish people think about Armenian Genocide in their literature. Um, It's also tricky because I really had very bad um, criticisms by the reviewers. Of course, we don't know the reviewers. So, it was published by Turkish Studies Journal, which is also a very good journal. I really appreciate the editor, the chief editor. Um, an American based in America and because all the reviewers were kind of against me, especially one of them Um, because it was a time when kind of people were kind of open about talking about, you know, uh, of course, they, they all have different names for genocide. And because we have these authors like Elif Shafak or Orhan Pamuk who kind of talked or touched upon the topic. So they just feel like, okay, there is this like liberal, free environment within Turkish literary circle. So why I say that um, there isn't, you know, because I, I, I what I did say in my article is Turkish literature is completely different from Turkish literature because they're, I'm gonna be very simple, yes, kind of, well, some of them were saying this, yes, we killed Armenians because we had to, because they were kind of collaborating with kind of Russia. or. One of them says, no, we didn't kill them at all. So, what I'm trying to say, I mean, they weren't confident, you know, they weren't kind of facing what happened 100 years ago. And the reviewers, especially one of them, was really against it because she was just thinking that the, their environment is more liberal. But of course, my argument was yes, they might be liberal. They might give this um, kind of interviews, this um, journals or newspapers, but it doesn't mean that they write like this in their novels. I mean, you, don't, you won't see any article or any kind of sorry, not article, any any book, any novel published by Elif Shafak or Rahim Pamuk. I mean, the, I mean, they don't have to. That's another thing. They're doing something fictional, but so um, then, yeah. So I wrote these two articles, um, which were in the part of my postdoc. Um, but as I said, you just you you know you can't stop thinking about that. Um, you need to. Write it because it has to be heard and read by by people um, who have no idea about it.
0: There's a few things to I think to pick up yep. on in there that you've like you really identified so many um, of the essential strands that connect the Kurdish mm-hmm. and Armenian experience. Um, mm-hmm. But really, also in diaspora, I think one thing I, I like as well as literature, um, Yerevan has played such a strong role in Kurdish music. Mm-hmm in the yeah. radio yeah, yeah. And, um uh, yeah. one of my favorite songs by chuan hajo is called yerevan exactly it's actually
1: one of my favorite one either yeah
0: it's it's and so there's there's this whole history that i think needs to be brought mm-hmm. up again um mm-hmm. uh, about how 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 resistance to an attack on identity that that took slightly different forms the sort of White genocide, if you can put it that way, of mm-hmm. of, uh, of Kurds and the assimilationist policies in in Turkey is a different kind of violence to the genocide. But obviously, they have this. They have this same source. Um, mm-hmm. So there's so much to there's so much to pick pick apart there. And I think one thing, um, touching on your book, I wonder if there's, mm-hmm. if there's specific elements here. Is is one thing is how young people think of this. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that your book focuses on the most recent generation, the generation that's grown up either entirely or at least mm-hmm. mostly under AKP rule. Um, yeah. So what, maybe we can, yeah, talk, talk about your book in, in these terms. What kind of differences yeah. are there in the generation now? Are there yeah. more connections, as you said, in Istanbul?
1: I did what uh, was promising my proposal because I was really behind my arguments because uh, I think that's that's a good part of being a local sometimes when you come up with the research because you see it with your eyes and you witness what's going on around you but especially if you live somewhere like called Beolu uh, which is very close to Kurtulush and where um, Armenians were or are still mostly based in so I, I, I mean I did a very long field work uh, so I was in I lived in Istanbul uh, particularly for this research. Uh, and I attended, you know, I did this participant observation as well. And uh, so, yeah, my the interviews took place, it started in 2015, kind of stretched up to 2017. But um, of course, it was, it was, it was becoming worse and worse, because it was kind of you know, in the, the, yeah, in the middle, just this um, military coup happened. And uh, we were just, you know, talking a minute ago, I don't, I don't think I could do this book, I could write this book right now, or I could do this interviews right now, um, considering this situation, because while I was just going through the list, the people that I interviewed, let me just count, like, I mean, um, they're not anonymous, by the way, so I can't tell who they are. So, like, for instance, I interviewed um, Armenian meaning jour- journalist, um, Heiko Badat. So, what kind of, I visited him in his office and we made an interview and we talked about everything. And then now he's in, in he's, a, he's a refugee in, in, in Germany and he's under threat. And then um, he's kind of um, under protection of German um, security officers. And the other name is Selatan Tash. you know, I interviewed him. Of course, I have all um, the reason I picked those people weren't just because they were public people, because anyone who has contributed this series of new social movements. So because I even so, HDP's, you know, um, commitments or their activities on Armenians. I see them as, as a part of these naive social movements. They were all a part of each other. So now he, you know, as he's been in prison for more than four years now, and Osman Kavala, and he's in prison, and who, whom I interviewed. And even in the middle of the whole field work for instance I do remember once I was telling myself I have to really hurry up I mean if I don't really hurry up if I don't interview them all they're going to be all prison because two days later um, one of them was put in in prison and he told me that he's he's expecting to be detained any minute uh, which which happened Um, so it's really very tragic for me to see this actually because I, when I go back to the moments when I was making these interviews, so of course, everything wasn't perfect. It was it was going very, very bad, but I wasn't really expecting like half of them, uh, you know, will be in prison right now. You know, very inspiring, very active and very promising young Armenian young, um, people like Sayat Tekir, for instance. He was the director of um the uh, Armenian youth NGO and... Um, his, his colleagues that, that they were doing this um radio shows so yeah it was really very hard for me to kind of um differentiate the issues of what Armenians were going through from what Kurdish people were going through or even LVs or even LGTP you know members because I inter I was planning to interview people just for Armenian related issues but I don't remember a single person didn't refer to Marash massacre, or you know, Robosko, you know, Roboski um, massacre, which happened. I think it was two thousand eleven. So uh, then, you know, you start to see that actually, like, we don't, yeah, we don't have just Armenian issue. We have like a lot of issues in in Turkey, and uh, and they're all related to each other and. They all have been kind of implemented by the same body, or by the same ideology. So, yes, I saw, I kind of considered all these um, activities and uh, achievements by these people as a part of new social movements. This yeah.
0: inter- interconnectedness is then, is that why the subtitle is civil society versus the state? Because the in end the to the book might be the Armenian question in particular, but as soon as yeah. go into that, actually the whole Panoply civil yeah. society becomes. Yeah,
1: I never, as I said, there all the people that I interviewed were like uh, Selena Doan, CHP, um, you know, Ar- Armenian MP from uh, the Republic Party in Turkey, or Ethan Macupyan, he was the advisor of um, Erdogan, like Pakrat Estupyan, the chief editor of Armenian newspaper, Argos, uh, Robash um editor of Aras Publishing House. So, Yes, I never ask any, any questions apart from Armenians, but they're all like interrelated and because they're all smart people and they can see that everything is related to each other and there's a democratization problem in, in Turkey rather than just um, Armenian one. You know, I think another research should be done right now because uh, we just read what's going on through newspapers and doesn't really give you in-depth analysis Yeah, what's going on exactly. And yeah, we need a deeper understanding of the situation right now.
0: Especially when this last month, Garo Pailan has the application for his parliamentary immunity to be withdrawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've mentioned a, a couple of times how how things were getting steadily worse. Um, mm. and obviously this goes back to that 2015-2016 moment, when first the HDP passed the 10%, mm-hmm. Boundary yeah. and so denied denied mm-hmm. the, um, denied the the majority of the AKP, mm-hmm. and I know that 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 moment as well as connecting to your Armenian focused research also connects to another project that you've had ongoing mm-hmm. uh, on Kurdish women and their organizing. Mm-hmm.
1: I think I have yeah I have quite a different profile from other academic um, scholars because I think they all have like systematic way of um, you know going forward with their research but my one is more like um, kind of giving a response to what's going on so why I came up with this uh, research with is uh, literary and artistic activism by Kurdish migrant women is because of uh, what was going on in Syria, and how, um, you know, YPJ's um, women um, fighters were represented uh, in not just British media in in all over the world. Although one part of me was kind of proud of them, that they were portrayed as strong, powerful women, uh, who were just um, challenging, um, you know, ISIS, and they were also challenging the whole patriarchal system but of course on the other hand uh was also complaining about the fact that they were seen as a kind of war machine We, we just see these women they're just fighting against isis just protect their lands but as if they just came together in one night or the whole problem is just isis so this topic um started uh, with my complaint about how they, they have been portrayed because when you look at if you just google um, Kurdish women you're gonna see either Kurdish women were kind of identified with honor killings or with as I said like women fighters or um, domestic violence so but that's, that's, the, that's the general tendency of the way actually, the scholarship um, or the mainstream media looks at Middle Eastern or third world women, actually, because, uh, yeah, they, they, they will never uh, look at powerful, strong, but I don't mean physically powerful uh, because we can fight, but uh, white uh, women can think. <laughs> so they can be a CEO, but we can only fight. So, um, so I, I was really like, I wasn't very happy with it at all. So I was really very angry when I wrote that art, um, wrote that proposal and submitted to um, European Commission to get the funding. And when you read my proposal, you can really see my anger uh, because I was kind of blaming them because you're providing money to these scholars or these agencies and they, they just write things about me and, and they don't represent me or you kind of misrepresent us. But why you don't see me? I mean, why you don't see my friends? Because we don't confirm your, uh, you know, Orientalist uh, point of view, your, you know, colonial uh, perspective, because that will challenge your power, which is true because, uh, of course, there is, I'm also aware of the fact that because I'm working on Kurdish migrant women, I might give a message that this European... uh, countries, they, they support these women. So they, they are lucky to be in Europe and that's why they are successful, you know. Um, so of course <laughs> you have to be really very alert as, as a scholar when you write things. So I'm very critical about the way they also uh, represent successful migrant women as well. And they all confirm their integration policies uh, as if, those who are housewives are failures, but those who are artists are the successful ones because they did what they were supposed to do. So anyway, so now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of facing another issue right now because I don't want to give that message either because it's also not true. So I came up with this proposal, as I said, because I wasn't happy with the way Kurdish women have been represented. But of course, when I was digging up about this particular topic i just realized actually no, nothing has been done on even armenians even you know um, iranians or any other middle eastern or even asian or african i mean why there's nothing about this women it's all about as i said the domestic violence or war i mean yes there are a lot of wars going on in middle east but <laughs> the more we, we write And the more we stigmatize, and of course, these women, they've been always portrayed as a a victim, as a passive part of the whole war and uh, conflict situation. Um, So I make quite broad discussions about how actually uh, Western kinds of powers or colonial powers kind of see, they want to see migrant women they're just, as I said, the, the typical man-bred winner women taking care of a couple of children at home. This is this is how they, they see. Um. So. Uh, so what I'm I'm doing right now? So I interviewed up to forty women in five EU countries, and I didn't really choose a particularly political um, Kurdish activists because we know them, I mean, we it's not like we know them very well, but I don't, I don't want uh, Kurdish um, activism just to be identified with political activism. Yes, I interviewed like two Kurdish MP based in European parliaments, but I didn't increase that number because as I said, I mean, you, they can be an artist, they can be a filmmaker, they can be an actress because they can be anyone. I mean, this whole um, identification is it's, it's really harming, this damaging, this, this, this women, And there's very terrible generalization and stereotyping. And I didn't want to contribute to that. So my project became kind of a space where I could raise voices of women um, who have been there, actually, the people like the filmmaker that i interviewed based in stockholm she has made a number of very successful films but nobody knows her because as i said success through a film just doesn't mean anything to um to mainstream media because you know she's gonna be at the same level with a Swedish, you know, white women. So,
0: yeah.
1: so there's, there's a lot of, um, um, you know, reasons for not kind of presenting her, but a fighter. So what is Kurdish identity, you know, it's also very controversial because these this women, they don't do things in Kurdish necessarily, but I still consider them as, as Kurdish um, artists. So I um, made a film like an ethnographic film. And um, so yeah, I have like six women's profile in the in the film. And, and as I said, I'm trying to look at the whole situation from different angles. So my criticism is not just about European countries and their, you know, failed integration policies. It's about Kurdish um, people's expectations from this women as well. So hopefully I, I try to, you know, balance two different sites as well.
0: There's so many nuances here because as the Kurdish women's movement becomes more and mm. more globally known even beyond the mm. YPG fighters, that acts as a as a pigeonhole that, that, that Kurdish women mm. get put into just being recognized on an on an equal mm-hmm. plane without the particularity of Oh, Kurdishness means that, yeah, a lot of really, really inspiring women uh, don't don't get recognition. It's um, it's just mm-hmm. one more way of being of being put into a compartmentalised category. This then opens up the last question we're going to be uh, asking all of our all of our guests, all of our participants in this series um, to answer this question at the end of the, the discussion. Uh, and really, it's it's a question for you to make of um, of it what you will. So, what does identity mean to you?
1: I'm gonna put everything aside, and I, I'm gonna give you a very honest, personal opinion of my sense of identity based on my experience. It keeps shifting, definitely. It keeps changing, and um, there were times when they were kind of contradicting with each other. So I can't say there's a there's a you know. Whole harmony and going on in there, so there are quite um, contradictions as well. But I'm I'm trying to adapt myself into the new situation and my new um identity aspects as well. For instance, now I have this migrant dimension of identity kind of added into my current identity. So this research really made me realize. Uh, very really important um, things about identity like how you really really make sense of yourself and how you really see yourself. I've done DNA tests to be honest and (laughs) I mean I didn't know why I I attempted to do that and it looks like uh, there's a high chance that I might be (laughs) Azari or Georgian. Yeah according to my DNA test I'm just three percent Middle Eastern So I'm 97%. I'm West Asian, which is Georgia and Azerbaijan. So why I'm telling you this, uh, what has changed since I found out this? Nothing. Still, whenever I meet people, I keep saying that I'm I'm, I'm from Middle East. Whenever I say I'm from Middle East, I can't stop thinking about this um, the documents where I saw just 3%. And then also, I know it doesn't really matter anything because I was born as a Kurd. Then I kind of feel a big defender of Armenians as well. And now migrant women at the same time. And I know even if I come back to, I don't know, I go back to Kurdistan and stop being migrant, most possibly I will be doing something about migrants living in Kurdistan. So it really doesn't matter. word ethnically or originally, because there is no such a thing to be honest. But even if you think you're 100% who you are, it really doesn't matter. And as I said, if my great-grandparents one day tell me, actually, you know, we are assimilated because everybody was speaking Kurdish, so when we came from Azerbaijan, so we learned Kurdish. So, but yeah, it doesn't really matter. So this is how I see myself and. um, they're in harmony and I hope it's gonna change as well because you know, change is is, is a very positive thing.